0: There's an old saying that the moms get lauded at church on Mother's Day and the fathers get beat up at church on Father's Day. We're not going to do either. We're just going to keep preaching through 1 Corinthians. That way I don't step on any landmines. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I won't have you stand because I'm just going to read one verse this morning. And we're just going to camp out on, on one verse. In fact, it's just one small, really it's a slogan within the verse uh, that I think, I think it would do us some good to unpack. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. The Apostle Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. And here's the phrase that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that's the phrase that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other what i want to do this morning as we look at the word of god is i want to slow way way down and i want to focus in on just that one phrase it's sort of a passing comment in the entire flow of what paul is doing here in first corinthians but i think it's it's worth drilling into and it's really actually a slogan um it appears if you if you look up what different scholars have to say the best that they understand is it's it's kind of a a first century slogan that that kind of came about um and if there's anything that you walk away from this morning the thing that i that i want you to to get is is this slogan do not go beyond what is written we're gonna flesh that out, but but that needs to be our guiding light as Christians in the world. Do not go beyond what is written. Usually when we think of Christian slogans, they're they're cheesy or they're bad or they're filled with error. You go down, well, I guess they don't have Christian stores anymore, but when they did, if you went down and you got like bumper stickers, there was just all manner of bad theology and imprecise theology and confusion. You know, let go and let God. What what does that even mean? to let go and let God. Um, or, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. Wrong. He gives us more than we can handle all the time so that we rely on him and his grace to get through those things. So, we, slogans are usually, the problem with slogans is they're usually just lazy. That's really what they are. They, there's just not enough time to get out enough information and enough nuance to make anything worthwhile that actually approximates biblical truth and that's the problem with slogans But here we are in verse six and we have probably one of the best christian slogans that I think that we can ever ever apply to ourselves and to say it's true It's pithy and it reminds us that we have exactly one sole source of all information to guide our entire lives and that is the Bible. That is what has been written, and that we are not to go beyond what is written. So we refer to this truth affectionately in Reformed theology as what's called sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is our guiding light for absolutely everything, nothing more, nothing less than scripture is to guide all of our choices. Probably the most most famous of all verses is 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And listen, this is the important part of that, because we usually quote that first part, but here's the important part. So that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is all we need to be complete in the eyes of God. To be complete and equipped for every single good work that God would ever have us to do. We don't need more. We don't need less. Now, just as a little side note, that doesn't mean the scripture is like this little magic eight ball and is going to give us the exact answer of every single thing that we should do. Do we buy the green car? Do we buy the blue car? Right? We can, we can extrapolate some principles, maybe, but at some point that's just personal preference. That's not a, a dictate of scripture. So what I want to do is I just want to spend some time this morning working through this idea of do not go beyond what is written. First of all, why did Paul even say this? Why bring up this slogan at all? Well, we have to remember the context here. Remember, we saw last week that the context is that the church is fighting over their favorite leader. And Paul has just said that that their leaders, their, their, the apostles, they're like rowers in a big galley boat. They are the lowest of the low. And all they're doing is rowing. They're just doing what they have been told to do by God and that leaders will stand before God on the last day and they'll give an account. So, so don't divide over them. Don't exalt them to this place that the scripture doesn't exalt them to because Paul doesn't even exalt himself. Now we do have to say that scripture does place leaders in a, in a special position. Elders and pastors specifically lead the church. We oversee the church. We teach, we guide. There's a sense in which People are supposed to submit to their leaders and elders, but even that is a limit There's a limit to that We don't idolize leaders. We don't exalt them. We don't divide over them You need to understand and i'm sure you do that I am not sinless Andy is not sinless leaders in the church are not sinless. We sin We need the grace of god. You need to know that we all need to be reminded of that So paul says don't go beyond the scriptural understanding of leaders leaders don't do that. And the reason he does that is because people are prone to go beyond the scriptural understanding of leaders. We don't want to get carried away. You know what happens when you get carried away with a flawed leader? You start a cult. That's really what happens. You start a personality cult. And people will follow that person no matter what. You see this in what's called big evangelicalism or big eva all the time. You got people who they're unimpeachable, not because they are actually unimpeachable, but because people love them so much that they cannot be held accountable. And so this people get surrounded by this. And that seems to be the, the warning here in First Corinthians 4, 6. Now, here's what's going on in this passage. How do you know that this is a slogan? Well, we have to kind of take a couple of hints that we get within the text and kind of put some things together. For, first of all, Paul says, as it is written. So verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. That you may learn not to go beyond what is written. That's actually kind of a specific phrase in the Greek. And really what it's getting at is, is what has been written down in the Old Testament. What has been written are the, the words of God, specifically with reference to the Old Testament. And, and obviously the New Testament is breathed out by God as well. But he's calling on the, the established scripture that they would have had at the time you go, okay, well, that makes sense. Here's the rub with that, is that there's actually nowhere in the Old Testament that specifically says, do not go beyond what is written. Not in that exact phrase. What we will see here in just a minute is there are all kinds of verses in the Old Testament that allude to that very truth. And maybe say it in a different way. So what we think that Paul is doing here is he's actually taking the whole of the Old Testament what the attitude of the whole Old Testament is towards not going beyond what Scripture says, and he's, and he's just gelling it down to a slogan. So this is just a summary, not a direct quote. This is a summary of the whole Old Testament's attitude about itself and God's people, how we should view the Old Testament. In fact, there was one guy who said, we can almost hear Paul saying this over and over as he disputed, especially with Jewish Christians. Let us not let our Jewish traditions determine The understanding of scriptures. Don't go beyond what is written, Paul would have said over and over. That's what he says. This is probably a mantra that Paul was trying to drill into the Corinthian Christians. Because it seems like one of the things that Christians try to do all the time is add to the scriptures. They want to add things all the time. So I want to kind of take a look at a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament. Because it's probably this general scenario of what he's quoting and uh we'll do that and then at the end i want to i just basically want to step on all our toes for 10 15 minutes or so and and just apply this specifically at where do we as as maybe conservative evangelicals whatever that word even means what where do we tend to go beyond what is written and i want to and i want to kind of address some of those a little bit so but let's start by just a survey so deuteronomy chapter four turn turn back to deuteronomy four deuteronomy the word literally means the second law this was the second time the law was given to the people of israel this is right before they entered into the promised land remember god had delivered them out of egypt and then they wandered around in the desert for 40 years and then they're about to go back into the promised land and right before they do god gives them the law a second time and they and they ratify the covenant a second time And this is what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God That I command you. So you know when someone takes oath in in the court of law, you know, they put their hand on the Bible, they say, they promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This is do the word, do the whole word, and do nothing but the word. It's all about the word of God. That's that's what he's that's what he's gelling down here. And there's kind of three specific guidances that Moses, that God gives through Moses here. The first is 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 we need to actually do the word to do the word to actually live out the commands that god says james 1 says be doers of the word not hearers only deceiving yourselves so if someone just hears the word of god and goes yeah i like that a lot that's a good that's a good word but they don't actually turn around and then go do that word you know what they're doing they're lying to themselves they don't actually love the word of god they're not actually submitting to god they're living a lie That's problem number one. God's word is not just an interesting philosophy book. It's not just something interesting that we argue about and and nitpick over. It's actually designed by God as a way that we live out our lives. We We put leather on the shoes and actually go do what God's word says. We are to do it. And and by the way, the reason that we do the word is because the word is consistent with God's holy character. So only in as much as we do the word are we consistent with God's holy character. If we're not doing the word, we're out of line with God's holy character. We're out of line. The second thing is that we don't get to take away from God's word. We do God's word, but we don't get to take away any of God's word. Now here's the deal. When you talk to people who are clearly taking stuff out of God's word, no one will ever say, And unless you're Thomas Jefferson cutting verses out of the Bible, no one's ever going to say, nah, I'm not going to do that one. You know what they try to do? They try to reinterpret it. They try to make it say what it doesn't just say on its face. And they try and twist it and and work it all around. These These are commands in the Bible, maybe, that we know. And we go, you know, I don't know if that one still applies to me or not. If you're trying to justify whether or not you should be doing the Word of God, you're probably subtracting from the Word of God. That's what you're doing. You're subtracting from the Word of God. So if there are commands in, in the Word of God that, that we drag our feet obeying, or maybe you just hope I don't happen to preach on that Sunday, like you're functionally subtracting from the Word of God. That's what you're doing in your heart. You're subtracting from the I don't want that in there. Lord, I would be just fine if that was just cut out and I could live my life like normal it's subtracting from the word of god maybe there are topics that you don't want to talk about or whatever it's functionally subtracting to from the word of god excuse me and i think this is pervasive amongst people who call themselves christians there are many sects of christianity they put that in air quotes who say you know we don't need the old testament that was the old covenant that was then this is now. We're in the New Covenant. We just stick to our 27 books, and we just have to lug the other 39 around because that's what they bind together. There are whole segments of Christianity that do this. I don't know if you guys have heard of the, the popular preacher Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley? Yeah. He goes, we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament because that's, because that's not going to help us. You guys, we can't even understand the New Testament apart from the Old Testament. Jesus is our Messiah. What does that even mean if we don't have the Old Testament? Jesus is the Savior of the world. What does that even mean if we don't have the Old Testament to understand the sacrificial system and what we need to be saved from? No, we need the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 10 says that those things in the Old Covenant specifically were written down for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 15, whatever was written in the former days was written down for our instruction. This is our family, you guys. This is our family history so when we look through the Old Covenant, we look through our family pre-Jesus and what they were struggling with and what they were prone to do. And you know what? We're struggling with the same things and we're prone to do the same things and we need the same grace that God gave them. We don't unhitch it. We don't get to subtract from the word. And let me just say a little bit of a devotional point. If there's a part of the Bible that you struggle with, whether it's a book of the Bible or a topic in the Bible, can I just encourage you? Go wrestle with that book or go wrestle with that topic. You don't need to be afraid of it. This is what God has given us to wrestle with and to live our life by. So if you're like, you know, those minor prophets, Micah, that's kind of weird. I don't know how to, I don't know how to read through Micah. Go read Micah like 40 times and get a commentary and get a study Bible and master it because this is God's word. God wants you to know it and to understand it and to live it out. So we don't subtract from God's word. The last thing here we see, of course, in verse two is that we don't add to the word of God. You shall not add to the word that I command you. And this is where I think we have a problem in most conservative evangelicalism, again, whatever that term means, but I think you get the idea. If if there's a problem in our camp that, that we have with the Word of God, it's that we often add to the Word of God. We often add rules. We add practices. We add doctrinal purity requirements. We had our favorite theologians. We had all kinds of stuff. So, so the conservative evangelical movement finds its roots in old-school fundamentalism from the early 1900s, where I think at the beginning they actually had a good heart of what are the fundamentals of the faith? What do you need to believe in order to be saved? The problem with that is it got out of hand and people started adding all kinds of stuff really to the gospel or even really to have fellowship with one another. I'll spend a little bit more time on that in a bit, but just know that I think usually it's adding to the word of God that we face as a, as a potential problem. Let me show you that in a couple other places. Turn over to Deuteronomy 12. And by the way, this is, what we're going to go through is just a smattering of this idea. Don't add, don't subtract. Don't go to the right, don't go to the left. That kind of thing. It's all throughout the Old Testament. So Deuteronomy 12 starting in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in fire to their gods. So Moses' biggest fear, when the people get into the promised land and God has delivered all of their enemies into their hands, is that they're going to go, hey, so the guys who were before us here, like how'd they worship their God? They're going to start up a conversation. And well, well, maybe we should, maybe we should try worshiping Yahweh that way. Let's, let's try. It. Maybe it was good for them. And God's going, no, time out. No, no, no. We don't do that. That's why you came in to destroy them because of all the idolatry and evil practice they were doing. They were actually taking their children and burning them in fire as an offering to their false gods. And you know what actually ended up happening to Israel? They ended up doing the exact same thing. The nations influence them. And it always starts out incrementally. They add a little bit here, or a little bit there, or they tolerate adding this, or they tolerate adding that. And before you know it, and this actually happened in the Old Testament, that the temple ends up being this little pillar of idols where there's Asherim, Pole, and altars to Baal, all in Yahweh's holy temple. It becomes like the public shrine of all these different false gods. But I love what Moses says in verse 32. He says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Don't add, don't subtract. And I like the thing that he says at the beginning. You will be careful to do it. Are you careful to do the word of God? It's, It's often easy just to do the stuff that we know to do. And maybe avoid the stuff we know to avoid. Well, maybe it's not as easy to avoid that. But what Moses is calling for here is care, caution, concern. Are you studying the areas of your own heart where you are inclined to not follow the word of God? And you're going, you know what? I'm actually going to be careful instead to do what God wants me to do because I'm prone in this area to maybe not do what God wants me to do. Are we careful to do the word of God? Are we just kind of sloppy in how we do things? God calls us to take care in how we live out the word of God. Look over at Joshua chapter 1. So Moses has died. Joshua is in command. Joshua is going to lead the troops into Israel. What's one thing that he needs to do in order to be a good leader? In order to be a success in the eyes of God, what's the one thing that God encourages Joshua to do? We see that in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Same thing that he just said, that Moses just relayed to the people. Be careful to do the word of God. Be very careful to do it, to do all of it. Don't add to it. Don't subtract to it. This is part of the way that Israel was to ensure that they would stay on track once they entered the promised land. And God knew that there would be all kinds of temptation to do something else. You guys, there's all kinds of temptation for us to do something else. And part of the way that we keep from that temptation is to not just do it, but to remind ourselves. Meditate on it what? Day and night. All the time. All the time. I'll be honest with you guys. It is amazing to me how much of the Bible I forget. And I study the Bible all the time. And I forget. I forget where something is. I forget a story. I forget a principle of how this applied or some background or, or, or the, the whole narrative or whatever. It's just so easy for us to forget. That's why God says to all of his people, meditate on the word of God day and night. It's the only way that we will be careful to do all that is written and not more than is written. We need continual input from the word of God. If you're taking notes, let me just give you a couple other passages you can look these up. Deuteronomy five thirty two. Deuteronomy five thirty two, Deuteronomy seventeen twenty, twenty-eight fourteen, first Kings fifteen five. Proverbs four twenty-seven and Proverbs thirty verse six. And so all that to say, there's, there's no one passage that says word for word, do not go beyond what is written. But that's the warp and woof of the entire Old Testament. Don't add, don't subtract, do it, and be reminded of it all the time. I want to show you one more passage that I think applies to our situation. Turn over to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. In Mark 7, we have this interesting recounting of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees, if you remember, were sort of like pastors throughout Israel. They, they led the synagogues and they guided, uh, they guided the people throughout the land. And they were actually the theological conservatives. It was the Sadducees who were the theological liberals. They were the ones who said, there's no resurrection, there's no angels, there's no afterlife, there's no nothing. Those were the Sadducees. They, they kind of hung out around the temple The Pharisees were the conservatives. But they were just as much in opposition to Jesus as the Sadducees were, just for different reasons. And their problem, and this is where I I think this is often our problem as conservatives, is that they often went beyond what is written. And one way that they did that was they would often try to pit one part of the word of God against another. Try and play God off of himself, and it doesn't work that way. Look at chapter 7 of Mark, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him So here's what's going down. They had they had created all these elaborate rituals. Um, they were they were not sanitary rituals. This is not washing your hands with soap and water for sanitary purposes. This was all religious in nature. But they had come up with all of these washings, and this was like ancient virtue signaling to show how religious and holy you were. You dip your little hands and dip your little hands, and now you're clean, and now you can eat your bread or do whatever you want. It had nothing to do with cleanliness. And it had nothing to do with true, what we would call true religion or true following of God. This is, this is just all made up. Now, here's the thing. There was nothing intrinsically wrong with doing that. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with dipping your hands on a little bit of water before you eat something or washing couches or washing dishes. The problem was they elevated these traditions to the stature of God's command. Such that if you're not doing my tradition, then you're actually violating God's law. That's the problem. Because what they're doing is they are now adding to the word of God. And they are holding it over people. If you don't do my tradition, how can you be faithful to the law of God? Problem, your tradition is not the law of God. You have just elevated it wrongfully. And that's why Jesus slams them for teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. They were equating these dumb rituals with God's law. They were adding and adding and adding. And by the way, by the time of Jesus, there were so many different laws and there were so many different rabbis who had different takes on what was right and what was wrong. There's just no possible way that you could obey them all. You were always stumbling over some tradition trying to keep up with what was going on. And actually, it just proved that they weren't godly at all. Their devotion to their own teaching proved that they just worshiped God with their lips. They didn't worship God with their heart. They weren't concerned about the heart, what was going on in the inside. They were just just worshiping conformity. Is everybody just submitting to my arbitrary rules about how to worship God? And they did something else, too. This is where they pit the word of God against itself. Verse 9, And Jesus, he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. What he's getting at is in the Old Testament, and actually in the New Testament as well, when your parents get older, you are commanded by God to take care of them. If they can't care for themselves, if they don't have the financial resources to care for themselves, you as their child, as, a, as an instrument of God's grace to them, are to take care of them. You can jot down First Timothy 5 if you want a little bit more of that. That is actually the way that you show godliness. And what they had come up with was this little scenario where you didn't have to give money to your parents for them to survive if you gave it to the synagogue or the temple. Oh, well, that's pretty convenient. I'd be like, "You coming to me, Jason, do I do I take care of my my ailing mother and and put her in a, a retirement home? It's going to be expensive." I'll tell you what. Why don't you just <laughs> write us a check here at the church for half that amount and we'll call it good. You don't need to take care of your mom. That's what they were doing you guys. They were not taking care of their own parents. They were subverting the law of God for this man-made loophole that somehow they could please God by giving the money directly to God. Somehow I'm thinking that kind of filtered down into the pockets of the Pharisees. Just a guess. But they were trying to pit God's word against their, their, uh, their commandments. You can't pit God against himself. It's like those nonsense questions. Can God make a a rock so big he can't lift it? Can God make a square circle? Can God sin? It's all nonsense on the face of it. Because you're trying to pit God against himself. It doesn't work. You can't pit God's word against his word. It doesn't work like that. We never go beyond what is written. So now what I want to do with the rest of our time is basically take this biblical slogan and I, and I want just, to just talk about a couple of things that might step on everyone's toes, um, but I think it's good. I can't hit on every issue. I'm just going to hit on a couple issues. I want to I talk about some issues that affect us as conservatives. It's always easy to take potshots at the unbelievers. It's always easy to take potshots at the liberals. It's more fun uh, to take potshots in our own house. What do we struggle with? Because I think that's the only way that this is really going to matter. If it's just, oh, those guys out there do that, that doesn't do anything right we want to be more like christ as we consider this and so i want to i want to talk about some of these things first of all i think we go beyond what is written when we embrace worldly philosophies and call them christian when we embrace worldly philosophies and we call them christian whether that's secular psychological philosophies or moral philosophies, or whatever. Right now, I think one of the most pervasive and dangerous philosophies invading the church right now is critical race theory. It is absolutely everywhere. It's on every campus. It's infecting our government. It's trickling down to every sort of thing. Critical race theory basically says white supremacy is pervasive in everything and in all of society. We're all white here, so we don't even know how racist we really are. We need people of color to tell us how racist we really are because we can't see it the gospel can't overcome this white supremacy by the way and so we just need to do whatever other people tell us to do this is everywhere in the church in fact it's starting to take over the southern baptist convention we're not southern baptists but it's starting to even take over the southern baptist convention this is the leading ideology behind black lives matter this is the ideology that is now influencing uh, all kinds of government policy from subsidies federal handouts for farmers to education to all kinds of stuff this is this is just absolutely everywhere and again it's infecting the church pastors and church leaders are becoming woke which means they are waking up and realizing suddenly that they are part of this systemic oppression that's gone on forever and and they need to do everything they can to overcome it the gospel's not enough but taking Measures like reparations and that sort of thing, um, that needs to be involved in gospel ministry. This is happening with people like Matt Chandler, Ligan Duncan, J.D. Greer, who is the Southern Baptist Convention president. These guys are all embracing this idea that somehow white people have always had power and we will maintain power forever, and there's just really no way to overcome this. You guys are just anti gospel. 100% anti-gospel. Have there been times when white people have oppressed other people? 100%. I don't think we can deny that. Is it systemic? And can the gospel not overcome it? Absolutely not. But this is pervading all kinds of leaders, and it's coming in in all kinds of churches, and nobody is exempt from it. It's happening in the SBC. It's happening in Methodist churches, Presbyterian churches, Nazarene churches, Lutheran churches. It's just everywhere, and it must be rejected. It denies reconciliation through Jesus is really what it denies. But there are people even in our camps that think that it's a good thing to add to our theological toolbox or our tool belt in order to spread the gospel. It's not. It is 100% against the gospel. How else do we go beyond what is written? I think we often go beyond what is written when we, kind of like the Corinthians, we start trumpeting our favorite leaders. And we do have... Our favorite leaders. We we find people that we like and we get behind and we think, man, this is this is the cat's meow, and if you don't follow them, I'm not maybe you're saved, maybe. First name is Dave Ramsey. Do you know if you're not doing the seven baby steps, you might just not be saved. You gotta be doing you guys, this is how some I love me some baby steps. You guys know that. We've done FPU here a couple of times. But there are times When the attitude towards Dave Ramsey is if you don't do his thing, there's not a chance you could be faithful. Like if you don't have six months in savings or if you don't do a budget exactly a certain way or if you don't save up and whatever, there's a lot of problems with Dave Ramsey, you guys. First of all, just how he handles the scriptures is horrible and his attitude toward other people is atrocious. You have to be very careful. Again, I love the baby steps. If you don't have a budget and a plan, do the baby steps. Do them. But if you don't embrace Dave Ramsey, it's not like you're going to hell. You need to be very careful how we talk about these things. But this is true. And in conservative Christianity, you get that feeling sometimes. That you're not being faithful if you're not doing Dave's plan. Do not go beyond what is written in equating Dave with faithfulness. Same thing with Calvin and Luther. I love me some John Calvin. If you haven't read John Calvin, you really should read John Calvin. He's very devotional. He's not the brainy nerd that everybody thinks he is. He is super, super devotional. But he is a flawed man, and his life story is very, very complicated. And when people ask me, Jason, are you a Calvinist, I almost cringe at that question. I don't really want to be associated with a guy. I'll say, you know, I, I get what you're saying. First of all, what do you mean by that? But second of all, I, I would say something more like, I, I like Reformed theology, because I think the collective theology of the Reformers, as they revert back to Sola Scriptura and Sola Fide and all the other solas, I think that is worth dying on. I'm not going to die on the Hill of Calvin or on Luther or on any of the Reformers or on any man. Not MacArthur, not Vody, not Piper, not Tozer, not C.S. Lewis, not any man. If there's a, if there's a favorite person in your life that you look to, just be very careful how you hold them. And I'm going to say this as your pastor, because I know, because I've been under pastors that I loved and embraced. I am not flawless. I know you know that. Not everything I say is gospel. I try to make it so. I know I will be judged, but I'm being really serious with you guys. If, if it comes off your lips, well, Pastor Jason said, be very careful what you say next. Because what matters is, what does the Bible say? Not what Pastor Jason says. I hope that what I say is in line with the Bible. You get what I'm saying? We need to be very, very careful. I think we also, third, we go beyond what is written when we view good causes as essential causes. This happens all the time in Christianity. Just let me name a few. But I think there are some Christians who think that every other Christian needs to be involved in pro-life movements. You need to be down at Planned Parenthood. You need to be doing church at Planned Parenthood. You need to be picketing twice a week. Or adoption ministry. if If you're not adopting kids, I don't even know if you're in the faith. They wouldn't say that, but sometimes it feels like that. Or pick any Christian cause. It could be a political cause. It could be all kinds of causes. We need to be very careful equating a cause that maybe is good and upright and even encouraged by the word of God, that that doesn't become the sine qua non of all of Christianity. Because it's not some people are called to be down there every Wednesday at the, the Church of Planned Parenthood and picketing, and that's it's great. Some of you guys are called and have been called to adopt kids. That's great. That is not everybody. We have to be very, very careful. Do we want abortion to end? Of course we do. It's the murder of children. Do we want to facilitate adoption in the church? Of course we do. If you're thinking about adopting a child and you need some help, you come talk to us, and we will do everything that we can to help you facilitate adoption. We should be eager to be involved but our pet it sounds a little condescending but but our 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 ministry that we are that we are focused on is not the sine qua non of all christianity here's a little closer to home i think that saying christians must homeschool to be faithful is going beyond what is written i and i homeschool we homeschool all our kids but that's going beyond what is written I think there are a lot of schooling options that are available, and we need to be careful how we view the decisions of other people. I have a lot of concerns with public schooling. I will say that right now. But am I going to say that somebody is in sin because they send their child to a public school? I, I don't know that I can say that. And I love Vodi Bauckham. I use a couple of his resources when I do premarital counseling, but I think he is one of the most unhelpful people when discussing Christian homeschooling that there is. It's almost like he has gospel amnesia, and he doesn't know that there might be people who take a different tact, or maybe people who haven't even wrestled with this issue at all. I think we need to be very, very careful. Let me give you two more, and I'll close. One is theological perfectionism. A lot of times in in our conservative Christian schools, we need people to be theologically precise or we feel like this internal impulse to, like, check what they're saying and tweak it. It's okay if somebody says something in casual conversation that isn't 100% right. You can let it go. It's all right. And I'm a nerd. And it bugs me. It's okay if we say things or other people say things that might not be just 100% true. Don't don't strain out the gnat while like swallowing the camel unless it's like sin or grave error and they are caught up in it like we can come back to it that's all right the other thing i would say is moral perfectionism we would deny what the wesleyans would say that somehow we can attain to spiritual perfectionism this side of glory that's just not possible and we would we would deny it all the time but i think functionally speaking a lot of times we expect other people to be perfect and we will rag on them if they're not. Should we be going toward holiness in our lives? 100%. Yes, we should. Should we be encouraging one another away from sin and towards godliness? Yes, we should. But people don't get there overnight. I remember when I was first a, first a pastor, I asked this older guy in the faith. I was down at a conference. He had been a, a pastor for like 30 years. And, uh, and I said, all right, old guy to young guy, like what's, what's one piece of advice uh, that you would give me to 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 shepherd people with and he goes so so your people are here And the goal is to get them to here and the problem is we want them here, but in this amount of time So it, it just doesn't work like that Sanctification is a process. You still want the bar high You just might need more time and you need to be patient And I think that's actually some pretty amazing advice for me But I think it's a pretty amazing advice for all of us the goal is Christ likeness. The goal is to be spirit-filled, but the goal is not overnight change. It just is not going to happen. It's heart change. It's showing grace and mercy to one another. I could go on. There's other things that we could talk about. I'm sure there's other things that you guys have in mind as well. Big takeaway. Don't go beyond what is written. We have all we need for life and godliness and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May we be people of your word. May we love your word. May we do your word. May we not subtract or add either in actuality or in function. Give us a heart to be careful to do all of it, to bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.